According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 6 this morning is our text. All scriptures, God breathed them profitable. This is where our growth will come from. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We have seen the feeding of the 5,000 which was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We have seen the uh, healing at Gennesaret on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. In between was the walking on water. And uh, now we'll deal with the bread of life message. I am the bread of life, which is the beginning of the end. It is a downhill slide from here. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 was where his popularity peaked, and uh, the bread of life message is where they start abandoning him in droves, and uh, we will be examining this over the next couple of weeks. We will be here today, it's the 2nd, next week, and the week after. We'll be here on the 9th and on the 16th. Uh, we will not be here on the 23rd or the 30th. So just mark your calendars there. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've set before us and for the opportunity we have to assemble together. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study, Father, the setting aside of distractions. We uh, look to you to provide. Father, we're the creatures of time bound by time we proceed through this life one day at a time and little surprises pop up here and there and things that catch us off guard uh missing a nursery worker things like that that we just kind of roll with it fathers we don't know what the circumstances are but father you're not winging it you know what your plan is and day by day moment by moment from alpha to omega you're bringing up the you're bringing about your plan for the maximum glory of jesus christ and we thank you for that Father, we uh, commit to you now this time for his glory and for your good pleasure. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John chapter 6 and verse 22 just picks it up as if uh, nothing else had happened on the western side of the water. That is, the healing at Gennesaret is not covered there um, from what we covered last week in episode 38. The healing at Gennesaret is simply covered by Matthew in chapter 14 and Mark in chapter 6. It's not recorded in the Gospel of John. So as far as the Gospel of John is concerned, we have the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 1 through 14. You have the walking on water in verses 15 through 21. And then you have the beginning of the end here, the uh, bread of life message starting in verse 22, taking you through the end of the chapter, 71 verses in this chapter very long chapter in the Gospel of John. And we'll even include verse 72, which we don't have in English, uh, but in English we have chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, I prefer to think of it as chapter 6 and verse 72. Uh, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And that brings chapter 6 to an end. In any event, I'm not in charge of chapter divisions. That was handled by a, a Roman monk centuries, centuries before I was born. And uh, we're kind of stuck with the chapters and verses that we have. All right. 
Let's look at it here. We're still talking about the crowd. The next day, the crowd. The crowd that stood on the other side of the sea. The crowd that was left behind. Uh, the crowd we read about in verse 26. You uh, ate the loaves and were filled. This is what I'm titling them. This is what I call them. They are the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. And uh, they're left standing there on the shore like a bunch of uh, idiots. I mean, they're like wondering, which way did he go? Which way did he go? Where, where is he? And he did a pretty good job of giving them the slip because in uh, full public view of everybody the night before, he sent the disciples away. <laughs> and uh, uh, he perceived that they were intending to make him uh, king in verse 15, that they were going to take him by force to make him king. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to go across. And so there was uh, plenty of eyewitnesses to this. The crowd saw Jesus waving goodbye to his disciples as evening was coming, as night was falling, and there they went. And, and Jesus was with them on the pier, waving goodbye, and off they go. And, uh, and so they go to bed that night, not realizing that he's going to walk uh, across the sea himself, while they're asleep at 3 o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, they wake up in the morning, and they're kind of stumped. So the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, and then his disciples had gone away alone. And so they're just kind of scratching their heads. <laughs> you know, well, he didn't take a boat. The last boat's still here. You know, we thought that he was saving that boat for himself, but the boat's still here. Uh, which way did he go? kind of thing not not of course dreaming that he walked across the water and caught up to his disciples uh there came other small boats from tiberias near to the place where they ate uh, the bread after the lord had given thanks so when the crowd saw that jesus was not there nor his disciples they themselves got into the small boats and came to capernaum seeking jesus when they found him on the other side of the sea they said to him rabbi uh when did you get here <laughs> all right and he has some strong words for them in verse 26 uh, what are you chasing me for? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, plural. The loaves and fishes was simply the most dramatic, the largest of them, but they had seen signs prior to that. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, he satisfied their belly and they want more. So we'll have to deal with that. All right. There's five things we want to get out of this chapter, and the first of which we set the stage by observing this crowd. I'm calling them the C-A-L-F, the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. All right? It's just way too much to talk about the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. So we'll just abbreviate. We'll call them the C-A-L-F, the calf. The crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled hunted down Jesus. This sets the stage for what follows. The crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled. And it's interesting because I believe this chapter teaches a wealth of doctrine as it pertains to keeping the crowd happy. This chapter is a remarkable chapter for 21st century American modern pop Christianity, which is all about keeping the crowds happy which is all about the modern corporate church, which is about the pastor who's not a pastor, but he's a CEO, and he's got a staff of pastors under him, and you've got this corporate mentality to running a church like running a business. 
Now, when you run a business, you have to keep your customers happy. It's the name of the game. If the customers aren't happy, you don't have customers for long, goodbye to the business. All right? Business is all about keeping the customers happy. I learned this as a waiter. The customer is always right. It doesn't matter. The reality doesn't matter. If it was the cook's fault or the waitress's fault or whatever else was wrong, the customer is always right. That's the way it works. So if you're going to run your church like a business where the customer is always right, what kind of church are you going to have? You're going to have the ear tickling that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. You're going to have the nonstop uh, priority of keeping them happy. Because if you made them happy yesterday, you've got to do it again today. How long does the happiness last? How long does carnal, worldly contentment last? In the case of an earthly meal, he fed the 5,000 and they had a good meal. I had some great meals in my life. But how long does it last? Just a single meal. The next day you're hungry again. All right? So this whole chapter, I think that the, the, uh, the rest of this chapter from 22 and following serves as a great application to follow up to the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 1 through 14, demonstrating that if you're centering your ministry on keeping people happy, that's a lot of work. (laughs) That's a lot of work. Whereas if you center your ministry on being obedient to the Lord, that's still a lot of work, but it's his work. And he's the one that is responsible for shepherding the flock. He's the one that's responsible for church growth. He's responsible for everything else in the outworking of a local church. Because he's the head of the church. And that's obviously what we want to stay centered on. There are so many approaches to, uh, and, and like I mentioned on Sunday, uh, howtogrowyourchurch.com. You know, and if you start providing these support groups, and you start providing these Fellowship gatherings for singles and re-singles and uh, all these other, you know, never been marrieds and college and all these other subgroups and stuff where you get them involved and, and you provide daycare for the, for the children and everything else. They got these things lined up. They've got it down to a science. And how can you attract these, these members and keep them? The new mega church up there by my house where salvation is not a requirement for membership. Doesn't that just bug you to tears? They don't want that to be a barrier. They don't want that to be a, a dividing point. Everyone's welcome. And then hopefully if we're welcoming to everybody, even the pagans, at some point maybe they're going to hear a gospel and get saved. That's flawed logic. If you're going to accept them in the beginning, why would they need the gospel? And if that's the nature of your church, can you really guarantee they're going to hear the gospel? In any event, a lot of this is... Uh, editorial introduction as we get started here this morning the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled the c-a-l-f they are such a picture of the never satisfied approach because they they got filled last night but they want it again today and they're going to keep hounding him to get it they'll even make him king so that he can keep feeding them every day what a great king all right they had chased jesus from the western side to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they're from this side. But they had chased him all the way over there before he fed them, before the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, even the second verse of this chapter speaks of that. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. He crossed to the eastern shore. He was trying to get a break. He was trying to teach his disciples about taking a rest. 
And a large crowd followed him because, notice, they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Notice, they already have seen signs, plural. And they're going to see a great big sign on the eastern side when he feeds the 5,000. So they have seen multiple signs culminating with the biggest one they'd seen. uh, And they want to make him king. But these guys are chasers. I call them chasers. Almost like ambulance chasers, right? They're chasers. Prior to this, they, were, they chased the Baptist, John the Baptist. They were, they were chasing him. And then here comes Jesus. They chased him. You know, you learn to keep an eye out for the chasers. Because they'll, they'll stick with you for a little while till the next thing comes along. See? I've had people, and I, you know, I've only pastored 11 years, it's not long, but I've had people telling me, absolutely, looking me in the eye, you're the best pastor we've ever sat under. And they're gone the next week. <laughs> and I say, wow, I guess now I'm the second best. <laughs> you wonder, you know, how does that work? Everything. I've had two families leave in the very same week. Very same, within, within three days of each other, within a week. One of them told me I was too baraka. I said, you're too Baraka. You're too theme. The other one told me I wasn't Baraka enough. You're not theme enough. Both families left within three days of each other. I thought, wow, how do you win? (laughs) You know, I'm not theme. I'm not trying to be theme. In any event, these guys are chasers. And they chase the Baptist. They're chasing Jesus. And the thing about chasers, it was interesting because they've idolized people. They build them up. And what happens is, is those that are your greatest, uh, most loyal chasers become your greatest enemies when they're through chasing you. It becomes interesting. These guys will be dedicated to killing him. And these are the guys that he fed on this one event. So they're chasers. If hold your finger there in, in John and just glance over to Mark 6, I think Mark gives the more vivid description of this. They're trying to get away. And um, in verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. They had reported to him all that they had done and taught. They're just coming back from their first training ministry. They've been out there two by two ministering in six different teams. And uh, now they're reporting back. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For they were, uh, there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. You get this idea on how busy ministries are and you know, best you can do is hit a jack-in-the-box drive through on your way home or something because there's just no time to eat when uh, the ministry's as busy as it is. So they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And so these guys are chasers. They chased him from the western shore, got over to the eastern shore. He fed them that night. He gave them the slip. He escaped from them, and then they hound him down the day after that. They find him later on in Capernaum. By nightfall, they were committed to making him their king. John 6 and verse 15. Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. So it shows you the to the extent that chasers will go. They can be very passionate. They can be very filled with um, zeal until you anger them. 
until you upset them, until you let them know that they're not calling the shots or they're not, and you're not going to dance to their flute, as it were. But they're ready to make him king. You know, these, um, these very rah-rah, uh, pep rally type approaches to Christianity, the promise keeper approach, all these other groups that and I, I, I'm not trying to be critical or condemning. They've got to answer to the Lord same as I do. But when you're building that much enthusiasm and that much excitement, you've got to keep it going and keep it feeding and keep it feeding. And that's why Pentecostals get burned out. They can't keep that high going around the clock for these years on end. And they just and so when they have some time of sorrow and discouragement, something's wrong with them. Something's wrong with their Christian way of life. And uh, you get these uh, you get these promise keeper conferences and you get all these men all whipped up into this frenzy and they get into this thing where they're committed. They they're rededicating their lives and they're all excited about confessing their sins to one another. They're all excited about being better husbands and they get all this rah, rah, rah stuff and they get really whooped up for a weekend. And then they go back to, you know. Their wife. In whatever names they call her or whatever else it's kind of back to reality again and that roller coaster christianity is not how he designed the christian way of life to be these highs and lows and ups and downs how about some uh, stability so by evening by nightfall they were committed to making him their king that's the peak of his popularity it's downhill from here the next morning they could not explain his absence Based on human reasoning, they're scratching their heads and all they can look at is in earthly terms. They saw the boats leave. There's one boat left. The boat's still here. He couldn't have gotten in it. He couldn't have sailed. Well, where did he go? Not even no clue that he walked across the water and he gave them the slip in an amazing way. Now, I'm thinking about this, thinking, you know, this could give us biblical basis for creating some rather elaborate escape routes. And some different things. <laughs> I think I'm going to have a trap door installed up here somehow. So we're, when class is over, we give a closing prayer and you all bow your heads. You don't realize as soon as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we push a tape recorder and the prayer you hear actually is recorded. While meanwhile, I'm making my escape out the tunnel. In Jesus' name, amen, you open your eyes and there's no pastor there. You know, wow. And no one ever peeks during the prayer, so you wouldn't know. So they're clueless. They can't explain his absence. Finally, a fleet of small boats from Tiberias provided speedy transport back to Capernaum. There's a fleet of small boats. And I, and I find it curious. How did they just all of a sudden appear? It seems awfully convenient to me that a fleet of small boats. I mean, 5,000 men need a lot of, uh, you know, they're going to need a lot of transport. And here they are. Uh, other small boats from Tiberias came here and, and uh, they provide the transportation. Was this the father arranging circumstances? Or was this the adversary providing circumstances? Which father was providing to keep hounding the Lord? And remember, part of the, the test at this point, I think this is the most vulnerable point of Christ testing right here. Some people say it was Gethsemane. That Gethsemane was the most intense testing because he sweat great drops of blood and don't get me wrong i think gethsemane was intense but i think this was 
close to or bigger of a snare because this was the add the prosperity test. This was the everything's going great test. This is the numbers are coming in test. The money is coming in test. Look at all these followers. And Gethsemane was a test of his obedience. This was a test of his humility. Is he, is he going to allow for the success and the growth and the ministry? Is he going to have that go to his head? Start getting prideful about his followers and everything that's taking place. And so I don't find it uh, coincidental that these boats are provided so that this crowd of chasers can be right there on him again in Capernaum. The problem, though, comes in verse 26. Ah, we gave you this map last week. We'll put it up again this week. Give you the idea of the Sea of Galilee and the different locations, left and right, top and bottom. He never really ministered down there at the bottom. From Tiberias to Hamath to Sennabaris. We don't have record in the Gospels of him traveling in that particular region, although we're told that he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, and, and uh, undoubtedly he hit those cities uh, in the Galilean region. We just don't have particular... Uh, those cities were overwhelmingly Gentile, by the way. Tiberias was the Roman capital, so uh, we don't have as much of a record of his travels there, and he may not have spent much time there, given that the bulk of his ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These predominantly Gentile cities would not have been uh, a big attraction for him in his Galilean travels. Anyway, he's back now to the top left corner of this, uh, Capernaum, right up here at the top on the northwest shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee. All right, the C-A-L-F, the crowd that ate of the loaves and was filled, didn't need any more physical food. They needed salvation. They needed salvation. This then sparks the bread of life message. This crowd was lost and they needed salvation. We find it described in verses 26 through 29, and we can even relate it back to chapter 2 where a similar incident uh, took the Lord to a similar conclusion. The crowd that ate the loaves and the fishes did not need, or the crowd that ate the loaves and was filled, either way you've got C-A-L-F, the crowd that ate the loaves and the fish, or the crowd that ate the loaves and was filled, didn't need any more physical food, they needed salvation. You know, when we have the homeless that come in here and they want a handout or they want a meal or they want our food pantry or whatever else, we can provide for earthly needs, but how long does that last and what's really important? Obviously, the eternal life in Christ. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, lego, we have it here in the Greek. He's the, he's the God who cannot lie, and yet he is very uh, uh, common that he uses this phrase, truly, truly. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're not spiritually driven. You're driven by your belly. Do not work. And I don't like that translation. We'll talk about that. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. What you need is saved. You need to be saved. Work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. It's not works plural, it's one work. Believe in him whom he has sent. Salvation is by grace through faith. You're all worked up over works. 
Of course, they're all worked up over works. Who are they? They're Jews. <laughs> Their whole life is works, living under the law and, and measuring up and, and trying to imitate the Pharisees who were the pinnacle of a life by works. So what shall we do that we may work the works of God? There's one work. Believe. That's your work. So they don't need physical food. They need salvation. So if you hold your finger there, look back to chapter 2. You recognize that this is kind of a recurrent theme for John as he authored this gospel. Christ cleansed the temple for the first time in verses 13 and following, and then in verse 18. It's interesting, after he drives out the money changers and, and flips over the tables and he does all that, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They understood that if he was a legitimate prophet, if he was a spokesman for the Lord God of Israel, that the Lord God of Israel would provide signs as his credentials, as his testimony. And that if he produced those signs, if he was a legitimate prophet like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that they would then be accountable to obey him. Of course, not that Isaiah, Jeremiah or Ezekiel were actually obeyed, but by their contemporaries, even the signs they performed and the messages they delivered were hated by their contemporaries. Nevertheless, they, uh, they want to know what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Keep that in mind because this CAF, this CALF crowd, is going to do the same thing, and yet they've already received all the signs they're going to get. And uh, so he tells them what they need is salvation. Uh, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, out in three days I will raise it up. And he's going to talk to them about the resurrection. He talks to them about his work on the cross. They don't have any frame of reference to understand that. They said it took 46 years to build this temple. Herod the Great had been on this remodeling pro, uh, program for decades. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Anyway, uh, the Lord would have a way of being able to tell his audience that they're thinking of things in earthly terms. But there's a spiritual reality they should be focused on. He says, you're... You're, uh, you're here because you're hungry. Your belly was filled. And you're chasing me because you want another meal. And so he says, work for the food which endures to eternal life. And that's what you need to be wrapped up about. Work for that. Work for that. All right. Some issues under this. First of all, they were filled even the verb is interesting. Cortazo. Cortazo. Cortaz is grass. Cortazo is to feed, literally to feed as in an animal, to feed with grass. It's kind of improper to use cortazo with people. It's more natural to use cortazo with animals, although it does have a handful of applications where it is used with feeding people. But it's not like, you know, if you're a rancher, you've got to go feed your, your, your cattle. You've got to feed your, if, uh, if you're a shepherd, you've got to feed your flock. If, if you've got animals, you've got to feed your, your animals. I guess if you have a baby, you could feed your baby uh, because the baby isn't smart enough to eat or know how to eat or where to get their food. You've got to put the, the nipple or the bottle in their mouth and so forth. You've got to feed. The idea of, of feeding is an active activity that you're feeding an animal too dumb to eat themselves or, or, or so forth. 
And it's interesting. And of course, in a passive, then you're being fed, you're being filled, you're being satisfied. And it's a fascinating term because different people are satisfied by different things. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and the unregenerate finds satisfaction in realms that are flat out carnal. Realms that once you are saved, you wonder, why did I ever find satisfaction in that? Things that no longer satisfy. Things that used to be a blast. You know, running with, a, with, the, with your buddies and chasing girls and drinking and all this other stuff. And your new manner of life, you think, where was the attraction in that? It no longer satisfies. Now there's things that satisfy. And the unbeliever looks at you and says, why does that satisfy? <laughs> you know? They don't have a frame of reference to appreciate that. And the very first verse that we have as an example is Matthew 6, 6. The very first verse we have comes in the Sermon on the Mount and is part of the happy are messages of the Makarios happy joy for those who hunger and thirst, not after earthly food, not wanting to have your belly filled, not living in this world and for this world, but hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Matthew uh, 6, oh, that's not it, and, all right, how about chapter 5 and verse 6? Yeah, the Beatitudes are in chapter 5. Happy are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be Cortazzo satisfied. They are going to be fed. They are going to be stuffed. They are going to be filled and satisfied and complete. When God the Father imputes righteousness to your account, it is complete. It is total. It is God's righteousness. It is complete eternal satisfaction. So that should be Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. All right. Other examples in Matthew 14, that's the feeding of the 5,000. In Matthew 15, it's the feeding of the 4,000. And they're being filled and they're being satisfied. And after they're satisfied, uh, the disciples are picking up baskets of crumbs left over. Fragments left over. In Mark, you've got chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. In between is chapter 7. And an interesting reference there in Luke in Mark 7:27, this Phoenician Gentile woman comes to him, demonstrating a tremendous amount of faith. And um, this Gentile Phoenician woman, the Phoenicians were Canaanites, and this uh, Phoenician woman comes to him because her daughter's a demoniac, and she wants the Christ, to expel that demon and, and uh, lead her daughter here to Christ. And uh, he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. Let the children be fed and satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And then she has enough faith to say, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. What a testimony. And... Uh, he is positive to her response and, and very appreciative of her response. All right, Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, Luke 16, 
You know it's in Luke 16, right? Luke 16:21. Anybody have Luke 16 memorized yet? Um, now Luke 15, story of my life, the prodigal son. But Luke 16, you have uh, the rich man and Lazarus, and uh, Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be cortazoed, longing to be fed, to be filled, to be satisfied with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. That he was so hungry in his poverty, in, in his impoverished estate, that even table scraps would have satisfied him. He wasn't asking for a big fancy meal. He wasn't asking for... Uh, Anything but the crumbs, and that would have satisfied. He would have been content with that. He had a perspective by which to be content over things that uh, the rich man uh, wouldn't have even given a second thought over. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his swords. So there are different standards for being content. We can learn to be content. We can learn to be satisfied. And if we're satisfied with God's satisfaction... It's a preventative uh, feature that keeps us from grumbling. If we're not satisfied, we're vulnerable to the grumbling mental attitude. Because he's provided all things necessary and we're not satisfied. His perfect provision is less than perfect in our view. And so we grumble. All right, John 6 is our uh, text that we're looking at this morning. Philippians 4.12. Philippians 4.12. Paul says, I have learned to be content. It takes some doctrine. It takes some maturity. You grow in this realm. He says, uh, verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, that's cortazo, and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, learning to be content. Whatever he provides. Whatever he provides. Now, contentment as we point out. We want to have his contentment. His satisfaction with what he's provided. Have a divine viewpoint orientation to these matters. Otherwise, we get into the grumbling mode. Jo, uh, James 2.16 What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be cortazoed, be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? There's our use of cortazoed. And then finally, Revelation 19.21, Such is the great uh, body count at Armageddon that the birds of the earth all gather in Har Megiddo and eat of the flesh of kings and the flesh of horses and the flesh the feast of the carrion birds of the earth is such that they are cortazoed to the extreme so there's your quick survey of cortazo to feed 
to fill, and the passive to be fed, to be filled, to be satisfied. And they were satisfied with the earthly food and had no context, no concept of the real food that he was there to offer. It's like the woman at the well and the idea of give me a drink, the idea of being thirsty, and then the contrast. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I provide, see, and she at least got it and was so excited about being face to face with the Christ, she went and got, uh, you know, the men of the city and, and brought the whole town out and sparked a tremendous revival there. These guys don't get it. They don't get it. He's going to deliver this bread of heaven message, the bread of life message. He's going to deliver it in four installments and every installment. We, and we don't truly know how long the break was in between, you know, like we have a 930 service and a 1045 service. And in between is our coffee and fellowship time. We don't know how long the breaks were, but he's going to teach the I am the bread of life message in four sessions. And in between, we get the reactions and the reactions get worse every time. And he goes from the bread of life message in the second time. And now he's talking about eating his flesh. They don't handle that too well. He's still talking about the bread of life. So then he comes back the third time, starts talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. <laughs> and that pattern of negative volition is just going downhill. And you wonder, why is he taking it there? Does it seem like he's making it even more confrontational every time they respond negatively? Because clearly, bread of life is pretty positive. Eating my flesh, okay, that's a little bit more difficult. Flesh and blood, drink my blood. Is he trying to make it hard for him? How is this coming together? See, some people would tell you that, oh, if, if people are reacting to your message, you need to soften your message. Really? Is that what the Lord did? People reacted to his message and he hit them harder. Because the reaction is, is testimony of something going on. Either the Holy Spirit's convicting or the hardness of heart is coming out in, in, in a very visible way. And so why gloss over that? Why, why allow them to cover to kind of put that back under the radar again? Bring it out. Let all angels and men see how opposed they are to the truth. So the idea that, that we're going to soften our message if there's opposition uh, is rather contrary to the pattern we see here in the four stages of the bread of life message from John chapter 6. Now, this group reminds me of another group, the Exodus generation. They also ate bread to the fall. They ate bread and were satisfied. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 16. Because it's the same thing being played out again. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew here, the sabbat that we have, is rendered by the uh, cortazo satisfaction. We take the Hebrew, bring it into Greek there in the Septuagint. So it's a similar context, similar concept, just different language because we're switching from the uh, Greek New Testament back to the Hebrew Old Testament. But in Exodus 16, you know, the idea of having leftovers means that everyone was full. Everyone was satisfied. The leftovers is what you didn't eat, and so you boxed it up and put it in the fridge, and that becomes 
you know, breakfast the next morning. That's uh, the greatest breakfast on the planet is cold pizza. I lived on that until I got married. I mean, that's the that's the bachelor breakfast right there is the cold pizza from the night before. My mother told me, she said, you either need, I was in the army at the time. She said, you either need to reenlist or you need to get married. <laughs> Words of wisdom from my mom. Well, with manna, there were no leftovers. Because God was trying to teach them his, not only his, the completeness of his provision, but the faithfulness of his provision. That tomorrow he would provide again. The next day he would provide again. In fact, if you tried to keep leftovers, you ended up with worms and it spoiled. So, here in Exodus 16, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is uh, between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Remember, when you're not satisfied, it leads to grumbling. So the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the fall. That's their expression, the sabbat, the expression that we would have with cortazzo in the New Testament, to be filled, to be satisfied, all our needs. Thinking back to their slavery as the good old days. Do you realize how insane that is? They were crying out in their affliction, asking God for a deliverer. He gave them a deliverer. He brought them out of their bondage. But now you realize the insanity of human viewpoint when you're in carnality. The believer in carnality looks back and he's got it backwards. Calling good evil and evil good. Calling um, being all backwards and confused over what is good. Thinking back to their bondage as the good old days, they had lots of meat. They were filled with bread. And uh, it's just a, a wicked expression there. Uh, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know how insane that is. God was going to starve them to death. You know, if he wanted them dead, he could have killed them with the plagues that he was wiping out the Egyptians with. But he was preserving them from those plagues. He could have dumped the Red Sea on the top of them like he dumped the Red Sea on top of the Egyptians in their chariots. If he really wanted them dead, why bring them all the way out here to kill them with hunger? That makes no sense. So the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Again, Moses is not going to give it to them. God's give, The Father's providing the bread. I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. See, he's providing physical nourishment, but in itself, that action is a spiritual test of their obedience. And every morning, they had to walk out there by faith, accepting that his provision would be there. And on the sixth day, they're to gather twice as much. There will be twice as much that will be provided, and they are to gather twice as much. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at verse 6, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what, uh, what are we that you grumble against us? So then Moses describes it in verse 8. And we have the phrase in verse 8 again, to the full. This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening. Before manna shows up the next morning, they're going to get meat that night. When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. Interesting, the meat was not designed to satisfy, but the bread was. 
meat, uh, bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but the Lord. And, uh, and it goes on, more of the description of this, down to verse 12. I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled. Cortazzo in the Greek, Sabbat in the Hebrew. You shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it happens. Quail came that night, and in the morning the layer of dew evacuated, evaporated, and what was left were the, uh, the fine flake-like things. Fine as frost on the ground. We still to this day don't know what it looked like. Uh, other than its description of it here, white, round, flake-like, and uh, tasted like honey. Now, Exodus generation. Is that a pattern you want to emulate? (laughs) What happened to them? They died. They died in the wilderness. Only two of them entered in the promised land. We're told in 1 Corinthians to take warning against the wilderness generation. Don't be like the wilderness generation. They all perished. And yet here is this crowd of chasers in John chapter 6 that chased him to the east side, got fed with something better than manna, came back to the west side, wanted to do it again. And they're imitating this Exodus generation with whom God was not well pleased. So uh, you understand what the Lord's attitude is towards them in John chapter 6. There's also the wilderness generation that was tested in this regard. Point C, the wilderness generation was also tested in this regard. It comes about again in the next generation in Numbers chapter 11. The wilderness generation was also tested in this regard. Each generation has to be able to be tested in these matters. And I think of uh, even... In our day, uh, Bible teaching in the circumstances where my parents' generation, they, uh, they got to the point where, you know, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, all they were hearing about was salvation, how to be saved, how to be saved, how to get other people saved. And there wasn't any growth, there wasn't any edification. And they finally just, you know, said, you know, these Baptist churches and covenant churches and places where they were going, they just weren't being fed. And then someone said, well, hey, there's a pastor in town that teaches the Bible and feeds you line upon line, precept upon precept. And they said, oh, what's that? And so then they go and they find uh, a doctrinal pastor and they start getting fed. And that generation sacrificed a lot to, uh, to leave the denominations and to go into these doctrinal churches and to get under authoritative teaching. And it's, and it's interesting. But now what are their children doing? And I find it interesting because every generation has to make that decision. Every generation has to pass that test or fail that test. And I think a tremendous number are staying faithful to doctrinal teaching, but there is a huge number that's going back into the denominations. And I I wonder about that. All right, Numbers chapter 11. More complaining, more adversity. And... uh, And it's interesting. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. (laughs) Do they really? None of those guys was over 20 when they left Egypt. The oldest among them were just kids at the time. What do they remember? What do you remember your childhood? You remember how great you had it when you were five? You know? Yeah, everything was free when you were five. (laughs) Right? Right? 
You get to wear a shirt that says buy me stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, they got this perspective. And uh, this chapter actually has some interesting expressions in it. Again, dew falls in the camp and they ask, well, what is it? And they name it, what is it? Some of them try to gather too much or try to save it and it's going to fester uh, worms and, and all kinds of things. Anyway, we have, we have the material there in chapter 11. Point D, Jesus ordered the crowd that ate the loaves and was filled, Jesus ordered the CALF to work for the right kind of bread. He gives them an imperative to work. Jesus ordered the CALF to work for the right kind of bread. And then he defines that work as faith alone in Christ alone. I hope we can relax over the terminology because, I mean, we're, we all understand you, there's no work salvation. You can't work for eternal life. But he uses the word work in this passage. He speaks to these men about working. For whatever reason, their orientation being that they themselves were, were working men or they themselves were so busy working uh, for uh, earthly food. And you can imagine that they get fed the night before, and wow, this is great. If we make him our king, we don't have to work anymore. Why Why work for your bread if he's your king and just hands it out every morning? So they're thinking, this guy is just a gravy train meal ticket, and we don't have to work anymore. And he says, no, no, you still have to work. Only you better start working for the right kind of bread. Because up till now, you've been working for the wrong kind of bread. Or you're not even oriented to spiritual life. So let's go back to John chapter 6 then. And I want to bring this up. And, and, and I want to show you why. Here again is why. There, there are some passages where you can, you can exegete and you can go into the Greek and, and you really don't glean as much as you do in other passages. Because we have, by and large, I've got to tell you, the New American Standard is a, is a wonderful translation. It's a literal translation. It is, it is right on target. Over 90% of the time, I'd say it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent translation. It's my favorite. I am also now starting to really appreciate the Holman. Brand new work that's out there called the Holman, Christian Standard Bible, HCSB. And uh, I'm starting to get more comfortable with that. I'm reading it as a devotional Bible. I've, I've brought it into prayer meetings and deacons meetings and things and read selections from it. I think uh, it is. It, it may, in the generation to come, it may replace the New American Standard uh, I don't know that I'll ever replace it in my study just because I have so much memorized in the New American Standard. But these texts are wonderful translations and, and even without exegeting a text, you can get tremendous amount of value and edification out of it. But here is a verse that I think if you don't have the Greek, you miss the point. And the reason why is in verse 27, it starts with do not work. And the actual verb in the Greek starts with work. So you need to cross off the words do not and move them. The words do not are in there. Actually, the word not is in there. But you need to take them away from the first part of the sentence because the word is actually work. The command is work. Jesus ordered them to work. And then he contrasted the wrong object with the right object. 
And I'll show you right here in verse 27. Verse 27 begins with ergodzista. Ergodzista. And whether you're looking at a critical text or you're looking at the um, majority text, it doesn't matter. Let me switch to a color you can see. Ergodzista. And I can bring up, uh, I think I'm up to 14 Greek texts now I can bring up here. I'll just show you the two dominant ones. The critical text and the majority text. They both start off the same. In fact, they're both practically identical here. Ergodzista means work. It's a second person plural imperative to work. And so Jesus is ordering them to work. And then he has two objects that follow that verb. One is negated. The other is the positive object. And so he says work. Then when he gives the object, that's where the not comes in, the negative may comes in as the object of the verb to work. So he says work, not, tain brosin, tain apaluminane, not for the perishing bread or perishing food. He says work, that's an order, work, not for the perishing food. And then this great big butt. What color do you want your butt? Let's get our teal. There we go. Butt. Okay. Well, you guys giggle over anything. That's oh, it's kind of a cheap chuckle. All right. Can make it a little harder for me now. Come on. All right. The imperative is work. And then there are two objects, both in the accusative. Tain Brosin is accusative. Um, and then again, you have it. Back to red again. Tain Brosin. Tain Menusan. Ice Zoane Ionion. So I'm going to erase all that and start over again because I, I just realized I want to do something different. All right, we've got. The imperative is to work. The negative is may. Tain brosin. The but is also followed by a tain brosin. And even if you don't read Greek, you can see the two tain brosins there. I've underlined them in red. Tain brosin, tain brosin. The single imperative is ergodzista. The first tain brosin is negative. The second tain brosin is positive. So work, not for the perishing bread, but for the enduring bread, for the bread which endures unto eternal life. And the only difference between this Tain Brosin and this Tain Brosin, I want to change my colors now, is the Allah, the but in between them. But, in contrast, there are two different kinds of bread. The bread that perishes. Is that too light? Can you see that? The bread that perishes. Think about it. Food is perishable. You come home from the grocery store with your perishable items, right? Canned goods versus other things, but really they're all perishable. Things have been canned to keep them from perishing because in themselves, what are they? 
perishable. Everything is perishable. All food is perishable. And no matter what you eat, you're perishable. Until you, I mean, you've got to keep eating and keep feeding and keep watering. And you've got to be doing this because you're perishable. You can go a certain length of time without food. You can go a shorter length of time without water. You can go a shorter length of time without oxygen. But ultimately speaking, our physical bodies are perishable. We're dying from the day we're born. The only difference here being the kind of bread, the kind of brosis. So we have perishing and we have abiding. And how long does it abide? It abides to zoe, ionios, eternal life. It's eternal bread. It's bread which abides unto eternal life. Ice, zoene, ionion is the text there. But when you look at it, what you're looking at is you're looking at one imperative with two objects. And the imperative is not do not work. The imperative is work. So it says work, not for the bread which perishes, but for the bread which abides unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Completes the rest of that sentence. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So rather than having it say, do not work for the food which perishes, we should say work not for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures unto eternal life. The command is to work. The command is to work. So I wouldn't really have a hang-up with the translation here with the do not work if they followed it up with a follow-up imperative to work. If you have to start your sentence with do not work for the food which perishes, then follow the but with work. But on the other hand, work for the food which endures to eternal life. Because that's the imperative. The imperative is work. Work for the brosis that abides unto eternal life. That's the command. Work for the right kind of bread. So, we get the idea. You know, they've done a lot of chasing. They've done a lot of working, as it were. Chasing from one side, grabbing a Tiberius fleet and sailing to the west side and chasing them down, hounding them down. We're going to make you king. You know, how much human effort is that going to take? All the stuff they're working for misdirected in their efforts they need to work for eternal life and so they're going to say to him what shall we do so that we may work the works of god that seems like a pretty positive question and yet what's their thinking their thinking is something that they can accomplish through human effort and there are people that would love to be able to earn their salvation give them the list and they'll do it their sin nature is kind of oriented to that anyway. They thrive in that. Why do, why do legalistic churches thrive? Because there are people that are good at it. <laughs> there are people that, that can really, really go to town with lists of do's and don'ts. And because they're better at it than other people, they can get some pride and look down their noses and say, Ah, you don't measure up to me. Right? And as far as they're concerned... They've got it going on. They're, they're, they're the cat's meow in that religion. Islam. Who are the devout working ones in Islam? The ones that are willing to jihad. Because they're the ones that are truly dedicated to Allah. 
So you get a group of people that are chasers and their chaser mentality, that are belly uh, uh, followers, that are interested in, in their own self-gratification, that are satisfied with earthly things, and you tell them that they've got work to do, and they get excited about it. What kind of works do you think they're thinking about? They're thinking about human effort, legalism, the pride of what they can accomplish in the flesh. And so he lowers the boom and says, one work to do, believe in him whom God has sent. Oh, you realize how dashing that is? Just shatter. I mean, they're all set to try to earn their salvation. You say, all I got to do is believe. Oh, that's, that's pathetic. That's too easy. That's too simple. It's got to be harder than that. That can't be true. That's too easy. And what do they want? They want something that they can work for. They want something they can claim credit and glory for. So what we find here in this chapter, this is, there's so much doctrine because there's so many dimensions and depths to this, but we find in this chapter the description of 21st century pop culture Christianity where people are following their bellies, wanting to work, wanting to do things through human effort, trying to bring in the kingdom today just as earnestly as those guys were wanting to make him king. Oh yeah, we're going to bring in the kingdom and then we'll get it all set up. He can return and, and we'll hand him his kingdom when he gets here and say, oh, won't he be thankful for us? You know, where would he be without us making his kingdom for him? How arrogant, how evil. All right. Well, we've got a good start on it. Um, we've got to talk more about this work because it's not work that you can claim credit for. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is a work, but it's not a work you can boast for. And it's not a work that you did to earn or deserve anything. It's still a gift. And it's, uh, it is a gift. So we tie this together with uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I think we do real well. Putting both passages together in a harmony. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. All right. But that will have to wait until next week. As I mentioned, we have today... We have the next two weeks, so we've got three sessions. I want to have this wrapped up in three sessions because of the uh, two-week break that we're going to have uh, at the end of the month. So let's uh, see what the Lord does with it in the next couple of weeks. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you uh, for all that you do, Father. And as, the, as uh, we're learning these lessons, the Lord was at a peak uh, in attendance, a peak in popularity, a peak in... Uh, crowded conditions father i pray that we might learn the, these lessons father here at austin bible church while we uh maybe we're at a peaking moment father maybe we're uh, we've got people coming we've got uh, a, a larger budget than we've seen in previous years there's a possibility of a house across the fence for sale there's there's a lot of things we're praying over but most of all father we're simply praying for obedience we want to stay faithful to stay true to the diligent teaching of your word and not get prideful and not get full of ourselves or not try to get sidetracked by uh, building some kind of a, a glorious temple structure we can be impressed with. Father, uh, we're not impressed with any of that. You're not impressed with any of that. And, uh, and I pray, Father, to keep our eyes focused where they need to be. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.